Hello and welcome to the Airline Business Podcast, discussing key news and trends in the global airline sector. This time, can Europe's airline leaders really make a difference and push through ATC reform? And what on earth is going on at Air France KLM? We look at the biggest golf carrier you're not thinking of, and why didn't airlines buy enough A380s to make it an ultra-large success? Sorry about that one. My name's Graham Dunn, and joining me to talk through all this and more is my airline business colleague, Lewis Harper. But before we get to that, a tiny bit of housekeeping. You may be wondering how often and when this podcast comes out. And the answer is, we haven't really decided yet. Um, This is only our second proper podcast that we made. At the moment, we're making these in line with when we produce airline business. So that's broadly every month. But we'd love to hear from you on what you think. Is that often enough? Not enough? Too much? Please tell us. And as luck would have it, there's an easy way to do that and to tell us what you think of the podcast by rating and reviewing airline business in your podcast app of choice. And while you're at it, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you don't even have to know when we're making it. It will just pop up in your app when it's ready. So Lewis, before we delve into the airline news agenda, we should start, of course, by mentioning the tragic accident in Ethiopia, which, in addition to claiming the lives of 157 passengers and crew on board, has had major repercussions for the airline industry. That's right, yeah. the um, Obviously, the, the, the incident itself was the second fatal crash involving what is a, a pretty new type of aircraft um, in, in five months, so... And quite rightly, that that's that's made it a, a very big news story beyond what what an air crash would normally get in the press. Um, and with the grounding of uh, uh, of aircraft, obviously following um, uh, which happened in a very sort of staggered uh, approach, but, but but finally was totally grounded, and and that's you know a fair chunk of aircraft. It is, yeah. So we're looking at three hundred seventy one in service Max aircraft um, on the date of the the Ethiopian um, crash. Uh, there were 14 parked as well for various reasons. Um, so so it is a, a significant number of aircraft. Given it's a relatively new programme, it's not um, not as widespread as it, it maybe could have been. So I think um, the biggest fleet was with Southwest Airlines with 34 in service, followed by Air Canada, American and China Southern. Those bigger, bigger airlines, obviously, even though they've got the biggest fleet of, of MAX aircraft, it's a relatively small um, proportion of their overall narrow body operations. So I think with carriers like um, Norwegian, maybe WestJet, where the, the, the Maxes are, are taking up quite a, a much larger proportion of their their uh, fleet. And, and enable them to, to start specific new services, specific longer uh, longer routes. Um, exactly. Uh, because it's a um, evolving story mm. and moving story, we're not going to um, uh, speak too much about it more today, but obviously that's that's going on, and that as things stand, the the aircraft is grounded. That's right. So um, we we that, that really is anyone's guess really how how long it's going to be grounded for. And uh, given the, the the way the grounding happened, in the sense that um, Boeing up to the point that the FAA finally um, issued a, a grounding notice, Boeing was insisting the aircraft was safe. It's going to be incredibly interesting to see how. They can move on beyond this point, really. So obviously that has taken over the, the news agenda. Mm. Um, before that happened, what, what was sort of dominating um, uh, your world before then? Well, actually, both of us, we were in uh, Brussels um, a couple of weeks ago for the A4E Aviation Summit. So that's the annual get-together of um, A4E, which is the, essentially the airline's body for Europe. So 
and they kind of reformed and, uh, and revamped um, about two or three years ago, I guess, as Airlines for Europe. Uh, and really, you, you saw the, the, the leaders of the five big airlines really taking, I suppose, kind of responsibility for, for campaigning on the issues that, that most affected them. That's right. So it is, it's um, a fascinating event in the sense you, you see the, you know, the leaders of EasyJet, IEG, Lufthansa, Air France, KLM, or just KLM in this case, um, and uh, Ryanair sitting on the stage together. There's obviously a lot of things they'll disagree about, but they found a few where they believe they, they as a as a group they can lobby and and, and aim to make a difference. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's I mean it is a really difficult thing to make a difference on. I mean, what they were talking largely around the probably the biggest. I mean, it might seem a bit odd that, you know, uh, uh, a week or two before Brexit, which is something we've talked endlessly about, mm-hmm. and, and many of the airline leaders on, on board uh, on the panel had also spoken about, or very much been asked about that. But that really wasn't a sort of a major theme. I think, really, they were talking largely around uh, delays, and the causes of the delays and the impact of disruption. That's right. So on Brexit, I think it's almost that everyone said all they can say on it, and no one knows what's going on. Of course, by the time this podcast goes out, that, um, that, that may, may or may not be true. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, but uh, I think... Um, so, yeah, you're right. The, the, I think the issue they really went for this year was around um, disruption um, and ATC issues that are basically causing quite significant delays. And, well, I mean, last yeah. summer was a a pretty horrendous year for, for delays for, mm-hmm. you know, where the blame lies is... Is, a, is another issue, though air traffic air traffic control is is obviously a, a major issue here. Um, and I th- last year seemed to be particularly bad, and obviously they're not optimistic for the year ahead. No, that's right. So Michael O'Leary made the point that January was already a bad month um, year on year. Um, so I think they're all looking ahead to the upcoming summer and um, yeah, looking at significant delays again. And I think um, it's probably a reasonable point that. Nothing's really happened to, to to stop that happening. So um, from that point of view, they have a point. And I guess it's um, with their traffic control, which uh, you know, people have been trying to reform in Europe for years, mm. uh, for decades. Um, the prize is so vast because, um, you know, not only uh, is there a, uh, a win for passengers, for, for airline business in, in terms of their operations, but the environment. And, you know, they were talking very, they're linking very firmly that, you know, if you could make progress around that, that maybe could um, could do something to tackle emissions. That's right. So um, there's obviously a, a new kind of tack they were taking at this this year's event, where they were pushing that environment angle. You know, as you say, essentially saying um, the the disruption, the amount of unnecessary flying, um, whether it's into congested airports or whatever, through congested airspace, um, the, the amount of CO two that was creating. Um, I guess what they're trying to do is um, is find an angle that that gets some traction with with the regulations and the yeah, and the, I think the politicians. They're do, and they're doing it against you know there's there's hints of um, of return to the agenda of um, of green taxes. Uh, there's moves in Holland, moves in Belgium over the last uh, couple of weeks. So I guess that's the framework that's set against. That's it. it. It does get a bit muddled because obviously there's um, they, they are separate issues at face value but I, I can kind of see where they're coming from um, but as you say there there's um, on the one hand yeah the ATC disruption is bad for more reasons than than, than the environmental impacts on, on the environmental side um, that there's a whole other agenda there around them not wanting um, excessive taxation excessive regulation um, they're very much 
talking up Corsia, the the ICAO um, scheme as as the solution they want for 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 all of um, um, aviation. Um, and not everyone will concur with them on that. <laughs> but it's you know it's and it's always it's a very difficult one because aviation aviation air, air transport has taken steps. It is improving. It will you know by virtue of newer, uh, cleaner, more efficient aircraft coming in. But mm. whether that's going to be fast enough for for uh, to offset the impact and, and oh I guess it'll be society decides that ultimately. I think that's the thing. Yeah, you, you just you just don't know. I mean, you, you can see an event like the uh, max grounding for example you can see aviation attracts um huge interest um, um when when something doesn't go right and of course there'll be there i think it's reasonable to have a concern that at some point in the future um if aviation's not doing if airlines aren't doing enough to to or sort of being seen to do enough to to really mitigate um co2 emissions um yeah there could be a point where that becomes a much more serious issue so it is something they've got to play carefully i think yeah so that they're working they're, they're working through it i think and clearly air traffic control reform would make a would make a huge difference mm. there the i suppose the challenge is you know that hasn't happened for many years and we've got uh you know european parliament elections in may as a new commission there's not a great deal they're going to be able to do in this near-term period that that is the thing and i think um there there is a sense that you know a4e has been going now for two or two or three years um, perhaps the, yeah, there isn't that much concrete progress and I think they acknowledge that and yeah as you say I don't, I don't think we're going to see any in the, in the shorter term but uh, I thought Willie, uh, Willie Walsh was uh, was <laughs> was very good because uh, on one of the panels he was he was asked and um, uh, Richard Quest was moderating and he said oh uh, oh Willie, this has been a, a, a failure, and he said, "I wouldn't, I wouldn't say this is a failure. We just haven't succeeded yet." <laughs> and he said it in a very dry way. But actually, I, you know, at the point of that was, mm. he, he, they will keep pressing for air traffic reform, and that uh, that is as much as they can do. But having such high-profile characters or leaders, less characters, or um, Michael O'Leary certainly <laughs> does uh, yes, uh, yeah. generate headlines himself, and he, he was on on particularly good form during the conference. Mm. Some of the attention, though, uh, came to one of um, one of the guys on the stage, Peter Elber's at KLM, which I guess. Um, yeah, there, there, there was um, on the set. Richard Quest asked a question actually, which is in the closing panel. You know, if, if you could run one of your peers' airlines for a week, which one would it be and why? Um, and it threw up an, an interesting um, answer from from Walsh in particular, which again <laughs> relates to what you were just saying, where he he said he would. Uh, run KLM for a week and try and convince them to join IAG. I think, yeah, what you're touching on there is obviously the continued tensions around Air France KLM. And so they were the first of the of the big European carriers to get together, with the you know, the, which have formed the basis of these major airline groups over the last uh, decade or so. Um, and they were the first to get together, and yet, you know, here, here they are sort of uh, 15 years on, and um, kind of underscoring it is that the KLM remains continues to financially outperform Air France which has many challenges whether that's labour whether that's tourist issues in, in France with um, terrorist issues over the years. There's, a, there's a lot of challenges there how you uh, bring those two carriers together has caused eruptions and and continue to and we, we had that extraordinary circumstance where um, yeah, you know, a week after Peter Albers was confirmed um, as uh, as KLM chief executive, there'd been some suggestions in the press that may not uh, come about. The 
Dutch state decided to invest. That's right. <laughs> and go back into almost renationalising. Yeah, it doesn't look like progress, does it, when you, you see it from that point of view in, in terms of integration group. I think it's fair. Ben Smith clearly needs to do something to... Uh, to, if if they want it to work as a group, something needs to happen. So it's not a surprise that maybe there were some tensions around what he's doing, but certainly the events in recent weeks don't appear to be moved towards a more harmonious group. It's telling as well that, I don't know if it was telling, but Elba's, um, but Ben Smith was originally meant to be at A4E and um, Elba's stepped in. We don't know why that is, but um, it was quite striking seeing the, the very heads of the four, it's his a, four rivals up there on and stage. And, and it certainly meant it certainly meant that uh, that he had to take his fair share of questions, which he took um, uh, in, in, uh, <laughs> in good spirit. Yeah, um, yeah. And just lastly, um, obviously, we looked a, a lot of Europe outside of Europe. We had, we had Etihad um, mm. announcing further um, pretty heavy loss. Yeah, n- not a surprise in some ways. They've, as um, we've said, they've been fairly quiet in terms of talking to the press. So we knew that they were cutting back on capacity, and this uh, latest results announcement came with, I think, further further cuts on capacity. They're rethinking a lot of their fleet plans, um, what what aircraft they've got coming in 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 the next decade or so. So yeah, uh, Tony Douglas has, has clearly had a tough job there trying to turn that around and. Still a lot of work to do, and obviously the stuff with uh, Jet Airways is is continuing as well. Yeah, so so Indian uh, Indian carrier Jet, which actually, out of all Etihad's uh, acquisitions investments, is one of the ones you can see the most uh, obvious route uh, and network benefits between India and um, mm. and Abu Dhabi. Uh, but Jet Airways has had all manner of problems. So there's a restructuring that's been going on. Um, for several months now, uh, obviously Etihad is a twenty-four percent shareholder there. For Jet, it's it, it's been a, a pretty painful process. They're grounding aircraft um, on a pretty pretty regular basis uh, during this liquidity crunch. That'll be a, an ongoing ongoing story. At some point, I, I guess we're expecting Etihad probably to make a, a you know a further mm. investment. But how how that looks uh, and when when that comes, we'll wait and see. Mm. So into uh, the second part we're going to be joined by um, David Kaminsky Morrow and we're going to be talking about Saudia. Make sure you subscribe to the Airline Business Podcast via your usual app. We'd also really appreciate it if you could leave a rating or review. Thanks for listening. For this month's cover interview David Kaminsky Morrow was in Munich to see Saudia's Jan Albrecht who was there um, speaking at an event. So David it's fair to say uh, well Albrecht himself called Saudi a sleeping giant and the perfect example of a legacy airline. Um, given the, the sleeping giant angle, what, what's he been brought in to do at, at Saudi and how, how is he getting along with that? Well, Saudi is one of, when, when, he, when he talks about the airline being a, a sleeping giant, it, it is a, a huge airline in the region, but it tends not to be noticed because when we speak about Middle East airlines, we talk about the Gulf Airlines, Emirates and Etihad and Qatar and Saudi are almost almost it must almost be at a par in sort of fleet size, mustn't it? It's it's a huge airline. It is a huge airline. Um but it tends to it tends not to be mentioned in the same sentence as as the three that are more that are more familiar as as Gulf carriers. And uh, and, that, and that's partly because it doesn't have the same business model as as Qatar Airways or Emirates Red Hat. It's not 
using its base really as a transit point or, or a connection point. It's using it really to reach the, the regional parts of the kingdom because Saudi Arabia is, is, a, is a huge, huge country. It's about the size of Mexico. And, uh, and that means it needs quite a substantial domestic network. Uh, as well as uh, as well as its international connections, so it's been concentrating really on its its domestic activity, rather than trying to compete with other with the other Gulf airlines uh, in the region. Okay, and the, the Saudi government itself has been um, taking some talking about drastic change really in the country in terms of opening up. How how is that influencing what what Albrecht's doing at Saudi? Well, the government is is trying to reform. Saudi Arabia, and that's quite a difficult task because you're talking about a very conservative country, uh, a country where change has not really happened particularly quickly, and that's kind of been reflected in the way the way the airline operates. And this is what Albrecht wants to do. He wants to transform the airline uh, in a way that, that 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 keeps keeps up with this this pace of what's happening in the country, and and arguably perhaps even precedes it. That that if the airline can attract people, then that'll help to speed the, the uh, speed the process of reform within Saudi Arabia in terms of investment and business. If you've got the traffic coming in, you know the two are uh, are obviously linked. And and the very appointment of Albrecht, who's quite an interesting, you know, it's had an interesting uh, career in. in in the airline sector itself is, uh, I guess, a statement of intent. Yeah, very much so. Uh, I think it's fair to say that Saudi Air is, is a is a fairly secretive airline in terms of it doesn't really make a big deal about its uh, its developments or the way it works. Um, and bringing in Albrecht, who is obviously, uh, I guess, classed as a Western or Western CEO, they're clearly trying to take advantage of. The knowledge that he has, and and look at where they need to improve the carrier uh, to bring it up to the kind of uh, standards and the kind of business model that has, that has already happened in the West. The kind of changes that have already taken place among Western airlines. Saudi wants to try to bring uh, bring some of those changes into its own operation because it's it's never really needed to do that in the past. It's always kind of Bumbles along as uh, as a as a loss making airline, you know, very much a, a legacy among legacy carriers, uh, because it's not needed to change. You know, that's that's just the nature of of of, of the kingdom and the way things have worked up till now. And and you've seen a similar you've seen similar kind of things among other some of the other uh, similar airlines in the Middle East. That it's just not been in the nature to to need reform. But if Saudi Arabia wants to change as a country, then obviously the airline, which is bringing the business, bringing in the, the passengers, bringing in the tourists, then the airline has to change uh, along those same lines. Does that mean in terms of the product it offers, is it, is it talking about, is it, is it dry carrier? Does that, is that going to be changed or are they, they committed That's to that? certainly not going to be changed. Um, it's, uh, this, is, this, is part of the, this is part of the issue that Albrecht has to, has to balance is that you've got to try and modernise the airline, transform into a sort of a streamlined and more efficient operation without losing all those really important conservative values which are crucial to the way Saudi Arabia uh, the way Saudi Arabia runs, the way it attracts its its own sort of core business. Uh, Saudi Arabia is 
the site of the two holiest sites in Islam, uh, Mecca and, uh, and Medina, the two holy mosques that are often referred to by the by the government, and and that really underpins uh, the kind of clientele that Saudi uh, wants to wants to maintain. It's important that it doesn't lose its focus on that, and things like you know the conservative policy on board, the uh, the uh, the fact there's a dry airline, the fact. That if you've ever been on board a Saudi flight and watched uh, a film on the in-flight entertainment, uh, I've seen films on Saudi where if somebody pours a bottle of wine in, in a movie, then the bottle of wine is pixelated out, you know, as are any kind of uh, clothing on women. If, it's, if it doesn't sort of comply with those conservative values, that gets pixelated as well. So it's a very, it's a very, very rigorous standard. And what, what's Albrecht's thinking on, on fleet? Are, the, are, the, are there any decisions to make around that, or is, is that forming part of the modernisation sort of uh, Well, Saudi Saudi has been looking at building a fleet of about 200 aircraft by around 2020. They do have this sort of SV2020 plan, which kind of dovetails into the broader Saudi 2030 plan that the government is, uh, uh, is um, implementing in the kingdom. Uh, most of the fleet plan seems to be sorted out. Uh, they've got 787s on order. They've got more 320 Neos on order. The Flyer Deal uh, budget division has just opted for 737 MAX. So uh, a lot of the aircraft are, are pretty much in place, but there is still an issue where they're having to wet lease uh, high-capacity aircraft and they want to look at bringing in alternative uh, long-haul wide bodies to deal with that. So I think you can probably look look forward to um, long-haul twin jets on order. They're not going to be looking at 747s and not certainly not going to be looking at A380s, even though they were mm. considered a candidate for those at one yeah. point. Uh, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised to find that Saudi is ordering perhaps 777s, 777X perhaps, uh, other 787s uh, to help cope with some of that traffic. So uh, you mentioned the A380s and as you say Saudi did seem a very uh, <laughs> viable um, candidate for that. Um, David's going to stay with us after the break when we talk a bit more about the A380 and why airlines like Saudi just haven't ordered enough of them. Stay up to date with the Airline Business Podcast by subscribing to it in your app of choice. And please rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you think of us. So we talked about it a little before the break, uh, the Airbus A380, and obviously big news with that earlier this year when Airbus announced it was uh, to cease production of the type. Um, uh, David is still here with us, and Lewis, you've both been doing a bit of work on this recently. David, I guess the A380, huge um, customer appeal, I suppose, but... Uh, passenger appeal but maybe less so from the airlines yeah I think that's really what it's come down to is that the the A380 is hugely hugely popular with with passengers and Airbus has marketed that to to a great extent it's had quite substantial campaigns uh, about the, the love the passengers have for the for the aircraft and it, and it is fabulous to fly on I've never heard uh, a bad word about the aircraft from from passengers. All of them. I, I think it's a it's an extraordinary thing that you know if you even seasoned travel journalists or 
aviation journalists, they still get a bit of a kick out of it, and there's still a a, a kind of excitement level to it. There is, yeah. I had my own um, experience with the A380. I was, yeah, I was quite excited to be travelling. So the first time was out of Heathrow with Qantas, and it took three attempts to take off because of a landing gear problem. So <laughs> they ended up um, getting an extension on the curfew. Um, <laughs> So it took off about 2.15 a.m., I think, after being on, on the aircraft for four hours. So I, I got to experience the the A380 for quite a long time on my first trip. Um, Longer than planned. Yeah, second time I was flying out of Hong Kong, I think, and the aircraft went tech. and It was swapped with a 777, so <laughs> that was disappointing. Then the third time was again out of um, Hong Kong and... About 15 minutes into the flight, it got struck by lightning. And I remember the, the captain came on and said, you may notice an unusual smell in the cabin, but it's nothing to worry about. Um, yeah, and it was an event-free flight after that. But um, despite all of that, yeah, I did. Yeah, I, I do get why, why it had appeal for the, the passengers, definitely. It, it definitely did, didn't it? Oh, very much so. I mean, I've, I've not had any, any kind of... Um, Anywhere near any the, the eventful <laughs> nature of flights that the Lewis has had, and and, and I have to admit, m- most of my A380 flights have not been on revenue services. They've they've been uh, delivery flights and ferry flights for for airlines, and uh, but but almost without fail, uh, when I've been on board the 380, what people have talked about is how quiet it is. Mm. I don't think I've been on an A380 flight where that hasn't been mentioned by by the passengers on board and it is remarkably remarkably quiet for, for such a large aircraft it's uh, it is quite extraordinary and and that all plays into the passenger the passenger appeal of the airplane but passenger appeal unfortunately doesn't necessarily sell aircraft and, and um, passengers didn't weren't necessarily appealed enough to pay any more <laughs> were they well not really no not to the not to the extent that was <laughs> necessary they were uh, certainly in the beginning there were there were premium mm. fares being offered on the aircraft but but ultimately it comes down to economics the the A380 economics just didn't stack up mm. sufficiently for enough customers there are airlines in the world that have made it work uh, Emirates notably is completely enamoured with with the aircraft British Airways is is quite a big fan uh, because it has particular operations that where the, where the A380 works mm. um, on, on its transatlantic routes on, on uh, certain other routes out of Heathrow uh, Emirates has its own uh, its own advantages with the with the location of Dubai in the world the 24-hour airport uh, it, it's able to make the A380 fit fit into its operation but not every airline is British Airways and not every airline is Emirates. And and trying to bring such a large aircraft into certain operations just just wasn't working in many, many cases. I guess people talk always looked around congestion and you know, that there would have to be um, less point to point and more um, you know, these trunk flights from big airports is the only way to, to handle so is that does that change thinking change? Well, that, that was always Airbus's. Uh, that was really the the uh, the keystone of Airbus's philosophy that uh, that if airports couldn't expand fast enough, then sooner or later the A three eighty would be, uh, to quote their former salesman John Leahy, uh, inevitable. Mm. But it's if it is inevitable, it's not inevitable soon enough. Uh, <laughs> I can I can see a point 
some point in the future where that, that may that may be the case. Because airports have certainly, mm. you know, the Heathrow remains, uh, you know, it's a, a prime example, and it's not the only one where uh, it hasn't yeah, expanded. It doesn't seem to be um, sort of the pressing issue now. I mean, it wasn't long ago. Um, Alan Joyce was saying that it's. Um, more economical for them to fly two seven eight sevens in place of an A three eighty. So obviously that that argument for the A three eighty just isn't isn't never kind of broke through really as a compelling reason to have them. And was that is that around the economics of the of of newer aircraft? Well, it's it's partly that, but it's also because at, at the moment the uh, the emphasis seems to be on on frequency. If you if you're a passenger, you want uh, you don't necessarily want to be travelling uh, on one flight with uh, 400 other people. You want the flexibility of being able to fly either in the morning or the afternoon, and that requires smaller aircraft operating more frequently. And and that kind of ties in with another issue of the 380, which is that. The economics are much better the more seats you put in it. Quite quite mm. simply, if you pack more seats in it, more passengers, you know, more more income. Yeah. But what you found with airlines that were taking three eighty is they weren't configuring the aircraft with these high density uh, layouts. Yeah, no, because I remember when it was when it's first rolled out, and that, and and especially before airlines started taking them, that was always the first question: what What are you going to do with them? Are they going to fit in? You know, there was always stories from an airline that was going to fit. Well, they're going to have fifteen hundred seats. They're all going to be, you know, they've got these hammocks in there. You know, whatever it was. It, I remember. I don't know if you, you probably remember the campaign when the A three eighty was really first first unveiled, and it was my my first meeting ever with with John Leahy mm. um, was was during an A three eighty campaign event, and when he was talking about what airlines might do with the aircraft fitting sort of elaborate interiors and facilities mm. and things, and I my my first ever question to John Leahy was, well, yes, but we saw the same kind of thing for. The 747 and uh, the L1011, and all that happened was the airline said, no thanks, we're going to put seats in it. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, well, thank you for keeping an open mind in, <laughs> in his inimitable style. But ultimately, that's what subsequently happened. The airlines kind of, they, they, they chose to put seats in the 380. They didn't, didn't put bowling alleys in it and put a swimming pool in it or cinemas <laughs> or any of this kind of stuff. Um, the elaborate interiors were really fairly rare. Emirates had the uh, the showers, mm. which were well uh, an interesting curiosity. I think Air France put in an art gallery, which, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is quite unique. Lufthansa, I think they they turned their the the crown area of the aircraft, the, the kind of mm. the dead space above the cockpit. They turned that into a into a quite large bathroom, which was mm. which they they said was quite valuable for for business passengers mm. who went to wanted a, a much larger bathroom Rather area be in. Yeah, yeah. than be crammed into an aircraft toilet. So yeah. the last of these uh, Airbus will build the last of the A380s in? The last ones will come off the production line in 2021. Uh, they're going to, well Emirates will be taking up most of them. Uh, ANA is taking delivery of its first one in March. Yep. Um, but interestingly, one of the one of the customers that 
that uh, never materialised was was the lesser Amadeo, and mm. Amadeo oddly had the idea of putting more seats in the aircraft. They were talking about really capitalising on the economics. They were talking about putting six, seven hundred seats in the in the aeroplane, which which probably would have made a difference. But Amadeo couldn't find the customers that were prepared to take an aircraft in that kind of high density configuration. So you can see that all this has contributed to the, the economics of the A380 just not 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 stacking up and not stacking up soon enough. Just as a quick aside as well, we're um, looking at the Sirium schedules data around the A380. Um, it looks like this year might see the first time that um, scheduled flights actually drop um, by the type. So um, already, um, uh, you know, not, not really that long into the programme when you compare it with other wide bodies, probably going to become a rarer sight in the skies. And so, and then I guess we just look to see what happens with that second-hand Mm. aircraft market and that will start to be uh, become clear as you've seen carriers and the fans have talked the, the latest talk about selling yes. some aircraft um, although not for uh, four years or so I think but um, we shall wait and see how that develops we will wrap it up there David thank you for your time Lewis as ever thanks thank for you. yours you can find links to the stories we have referenced uh, including David's interview with uh, Saudi Air Chief Jan Albrecht in the podcast notes and if you've enjoyed the podcast and can spare the time, please leave a review. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. You get it automatically then. We'll be back again in April. In the meantime, stay up to date on breaking airline news and stories at flightglobal.com. See you next time. <laughs>